A federal buying approach known as category management for several years has sought to boost efficiency by pooling requirements for various commodities. That way, the government can negotiate better prices. The General Services Administration states that category management is also supposed to help the government meet its small business goals. But in fact, according to my next guest, it's reducing the population of small business contractors. For details, we turn to the CEO and co-founder of the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce, Margot Dorfman. Ms. Dorfman, good to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. And just briefly, tell us about the size and scope of the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce. Sure. The U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce was founded in 2001, really to focus on economic growth for women and small businesses across the board. And we have 500,000 members. We're based in Washington, D.C., and the majority of the work that we do is in the federal marketplace. All right. I believe this is a first we've had your group on the show, so welcome. And let's get to the issue at hand. You have a report out saying that the number of federal small business contractors is declining, and you attribute it to this idea we've been talking about, which is category management. What are the trends you're seeing? Give us some of the numbers here first. Absolutely. So when we pulled the report, what we found was that there's been a loss of 21,500 small businesses or 24% of federal small business suppliers that were lost between 2017 and 2020. These losses cut across all socioeconomic categories. However, women-owned firms were hit worst at 22% and then veteran-owned small businesses hit second at 17%. We also see that the losses cut across all industries. So as an example, if you take a look at both in the common spend and defense-centric areas, we have 33% lost in human capital, 40% lost in office management, 37% lost in security and protection, 21% in facilities and construction, and 21% in professional services. And your source of data was government databases themselves, correct? Correct. So we did use two. One is a mouthful. It's the GSA's government-wide category management reporting and analytics site. And the information actually is in the portal that is called Public Category Management Dashboards and Analytics. And this data access portal actually came about because the work that we did with Congress to ensure transparency and accountability under these types of contracts. And then the other area that we looked at was the unique vendors report, which can be found in the new SAM.gov data bank on contract data. Then how do you attribute these losses in the numbers of contractors to specifically category management? With category management, as you mentioned, that this was supposed to be grand and we're going to help cut costs. But what we have found is that has impacted our members greatly. For instance, what's happened is we've had the 30-year-old firms and emerging firms getting cut out. So if you have a firm that has a contract, for instance, and then suddenly it's being pulled out of that particular vehicle that it was under, then it's put under category management and the small business had been accessing it is no longer able to access it. The category management best in class has actually shrunk how they work with the contractors out there, the suppliers out there. So what we're seeing is the contracts themselves are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then that means that small businesses can't really compete as a prime. 
and the larger businesses are accessing this. Additionally, small businesses don't have the ability to get on these particular vehicles because they're finite. They only allow a certain numbers in, and there is also a number of hurdles to jump, which is very difficult for our small businesses. We're speaking with Margot Dorfman. She is CEO and founder of the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, within, say, the reseller category of type of business, there's a wide range of sizes in terms of employees that's allowed, up to several hundred. So could it be that what's going on is small businesses are competing with smaller businesses and those at the top of the small business limit are the ones that seem to be surviving? What we've seen is more of the larger businesses that are able to get onto these contracting vehicles are the ones who are winning these contracts. And and I do have as an example, I have a member who told us that basically what I just shared was, you know, they were locked out of competing for a contract that they were already on and that there was a big business that won the contract. And what they did was hired her team away from her and then charged the federal government more for the same work that they had already been doing. So when you're looking at costs and this is supposed to save money for the federal government, what we see is that maybe in their acquisition team numbers that they're dropping that, so they're saving money there, but it's not doing any justification. In fact, we're losing the industrial base, the very folks that are creating jobs (laughs) in, in the local economies and contributing to the local economies. The other thing that the federal government as taxpayers have lost are the small businesses what they bring, the innovation, the flexibility, the ability to turn on a dime, and that competitive pricing because they don't have the high overhead that the big businesses have. And yet every year the government reports meeting its small business statutory goal of whatever it is, 23%. So from their point of view, what's the problem? Right. And I've questioned those goals. What we've seen is while they may be meeting the goals, it looks like it's with fewer and fewer small businesses. And even those contracts are larger and larger. So if you're an emerging business and we have a lot of folks who, hey, I've served my time in the federal space and I'm an expert in this area. I've worked for you know the Navy or whatever they've worked for and they're ready to get out on their own and start working. They have a harder time to even access and get into the federal space to be you know, a supplier. So it's very difficult for small businesses. And the chamber is calling for some specific remedies here in the form of an executive order from the Biden White House. What is it you're asking them to do? So we are hitting this at a number of different angles. So the first thing we did was because this whole thing started in terms of how it was implemented, category management was actually signed in under two executive orders and then rolled out quickly. It bypassed all regulatory process so that we didn't have a chance to comment it. So we said, well, we could do the same thing and reverse that. Why don't we have President Biden sign a different executive order? And it would do two things that we're looking for because category management is based in tiers and tier three is the best. We want all small business spending no matter whether they're on a vehicle or not, counted as tier three best-in-class spending. The other thing we want to have happen is that we make small businesses exempt from any and all policies that direct procurements for best-in-class vehicles. Then what we have done is also ask Congress to get involved 
and we would like them to pass some legislation that would exempt small businesses from all of the category management best-in-class contract limits and let small businesses compete and ensure that we achieve maximum participation in small business concerns as prime contractors, which is actually federal statute. Right. And just how does all this square with the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR? The way this was implemented never went through the FAR. This has been all rolled out through Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and that's how basically GSA and OMB have put this forth. So we have to make some changes that way or put in the regulations through Congress, which will get it into the FAR properly. And at this point, there is no permanent person at the Office of Federal Procurement Policy in the White House. We're waiting for the OFPP, but most administrations take a while to get around to that one. Have you heard any positive feedback or any negative feedback or any response one way or the other? What I have heard of OMB, because as you said, there is still a lot of dust in the air. It hasn't been settled. Once they do come into play, we will be asking them, hey, can you just rewrite how this is implemented? That would even be easier. But what we do know is that they have our report. They are talking about the report. And hopefully, as uh, they do get settled, that they will be putting out some remedies for us. I think it's very important that we include all small businesses in the supplier base to keep the industry base alive and well and make sure uh, the U.S. economy is growing. Margot Dorfman is CEO and co-founder of the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. I would just welcome anybody who would like to get more information on the report to visit uswcc.org. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness 
uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream 
dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service, uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, 
Take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.